All right, uh, if you could, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to start in the last verse, verse 26, and we're going to read through uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. Galatians chapter 5, 26 through Galatians 6, verse 5. The Bible says, Let us not become those with vain glory, challenging one another, envying one another. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Let's pray together. Our kind, gracious Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage, we thank you for your tender mercies. And we who are sinners do not deserve your grace. And even as believers, we stumble and fall far too often, but we thank you for loving us, for strengthening strengthening us. Uh, We ask that you would help us as we come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would help us to love one another as as you love us, and uh, that you would kill our pride, that we would esteem our brothers and sisters above ourselves, that we would have unity in the family of God. We thank you, Father, for your word, and now we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In our passage this evening, the overall theme of this passage is fulfilling the law of Christ, which we see in verse 2. And tonight, I'd like to investigate three words that should help you fulfill the law of Christ. You can pursue this goal by remembering these three key words that we're going to examine tonight. And these words are restore, bear, and examine. And you'll notice they're all from the passage. The scriptural truths found in this passage will help you kill the pride that's in your heart and help you better love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And our first word is restore, but before we begin, we need to frame this passage and understand this passage in the context of where it fits within the rest of Galatians. Immediately preceding this passage is Galatians chapter 5, where we see Paul describe what it looks like to walk according to the Spirit. See, Paul contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And we see in Galatians 5.25 that Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Immediately following this verse, we come to the beginning of our passage for this evening. That's verse 26, where it says that we are to, uh, uh, where in verse 26 it says, Let us not become those with vainglory, challenging one another, envying one another. And this idea acts as the bridge between chapter 5 to chapter 6. Indeed, many commentators argue that chapter, or or verse 26, pardon me, is actually better suited in chapter 6 than in chapter 5. And this is because Galatians 6 provides application for the truth that Paul is teaching us in chapter 5. In Galatians 5.25, we're told that we are to walk by the Spirit. But then in Galatians 
5.26, we are provided a negative application that we are to avoid in this walk in order that we might correctly walk according to the Spirit. We are told that if we are to walk by the Spirit, we must not be doing so with those who are vainglorious or boasting. In other words, we should not be boastful or falsely proud. Such a vainglorious person is being led astray by his sinful pride and is certainly not being led by the Holy Spirit. Pride is a deadly sin. It's the root of all sin. Satan was lifted up by his pride, causing him to rebel against God. Adam and Eve's sin, what was it motivated by? By pride, for they thought they knew better than God. Today, such pride is the root of all sorts of dissensions and quarrels. It promotes envy, jealousy, and such pride leads to fighting that breaks out and and causes disunity within the body of the church. Show me a church that lacks unity and I will show you a church that has an issue with pride. When a person envies another, they are giving into the desires of a prideful heart. Instead of realizing who they are in God's economy, a totally depraved sinner who deserves eternal judgment, the boastful man thinks that they're someone special, somebody that can boast in themselves. Instead of being thankful for the sustaining grace of God, which allows them to draw their very breath, they think they deserve more. That is pride, and such pride will destroy your spiritual walk. It would also destroy the unity of the church and is not the mark of a Christian community. And this is Paul's point in 526. And as we begin going into chapter 6, we have to understand this backdrop uh, of of a a polemic against pride. So in chapter 6, verse 1, as we move through the passage, Paul starts us off with the familiar word Adelphoi, translated as brothers. He's addressing fellow believers in a a familial tone, as as members of the church, as one body, as a member of a family. And as a family, we should not be boastful, envious, or involved in constant arguments. We are not to challenge one another or to seek superiority over each other. No, instead of mutual envy and provocation, we are to seek mutual love and support. Paul is setting up the next portion of this verse, in verse 1. Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And here we come to the first word that should help you fulfill the law of Christ and kill the pride that is in your, in your heart. And that word is restore. To fulfill the law of Christ and kill pride, we are to practice restoration. So what does this mean? Well, let's break down the verse. The word anyone refers to believers. The context of anyone is brothers at the beginning of this verse. Paul is not giving instruction for how we're supposed to deal with the outside world. We see that in other passages. He's not telling us how to deal with people everywhere. The context defines the anyone as believers. You know, Terms in scripture such as anyone, all, everyone, world, etc. are always defined by their context. And it's important to understand the context to properly interpret scripture. Indeed, it's been well stated, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that a text without a context is simply a pretext to proof text. I'll say that again. A text without a context is simply a pretext to proof text. And no, I did not invent that. Far smarter people than myself invented that. But it has truth to it. And we should apply this when we're uh, interpreting Scripture. So here we look at the word, the context for the word anyone, and it informs our understanding of whom Paul is speaking about. He's talking about believers who are caught in a transgression. Now, the word transgression speaks of sin. 
To be caught in a transgression doesn't mean that the believer is caught red-handed. It's like a spotlight is shown on him right as he's committing this sin or this transgression. No, instead it speaks of the the sinner, the believer, being entangled in sin. It's like a a whale gets entangled in a fishing line or something like that. But the sin reaches out and catches them. The term has the basic idea of stumbling or falling. The person does not commit the sin with premeditation perhaps, but rather fails to be on his guard or perhaps flirts with the temptation because he thinks he can withstand it on his own strength. A common form of sin is simply trying to live life in our own strength, in our own power, and not according to the Spirit, as Paul instructs us in chapter 5.25. When we do not live by the Spirit, we always fail, and we produce the deeds of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. Now, please do not think that Paul is excusing sin here when he says that the believer is stumbling into sin or reached out or someone, the sin reaches out and grabs the, the believer. The ensnarement only occurs when the believer is not living by the Spirit, as Paul has already instructed us in chapter 5. And instead, the, the believer is living according to his own strength and his own power. Now, remember the context of verse 26. A believer who lives according to his own strength is demonstrating a sinful attitude of pride. And so while this verse applies to any form of sin that reaches out and catches a believer, specifically it addresses the root sin of pride. An illustration, take the story of Joshua in Joshua chapter 7. The children of Israel to suffer, suffer defeat at the city of Ai. Why? Because they don't seek the Lord before going up to battle. They rely on their own strength, not the strength of the Lord. They don't consult the Lord. They don't realize that there is sin in the camp. And because of that, men die. Pride is the root of every form of sin. Now, what's the remedy for this situation? Well, Paul commands, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Now, before we describe restoration, what does he mean by the phrase, you who are spiritual? I mean, is Paul talking to a specific group of believers here? A higher class of Christian? Uh, the super Christians? The, the really big disciples? You know, some denominations take this verse to mean just that. I mean, for example, some Methodists teach that you can be saved by believing in Jesus as Savior, but you don't need to submit to him as Lord to be a Christian. If you want to be a super Christian, then you submit your will to the Lord's will later on, and then you become really spiritual. You're the a super Christian, a real spiritual Christian. But that's not what Paul is saying here at all. Paul is not dividing the Galatian church into the spiritual over here and the super spiritual over here and the worldly Christians out there. Such division would directly contradict Paul's overall argument. When he speaks of those who are spiritual, he's referring to those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, all Christians, everyone who has been saved by Christ. Throughout this epistle, Paul repeatedly refers to believers as ones who have received the Spirit. In Galatians 4, 6, Paul declares, Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this means the term, you who are spiritual, in chapter 6, verse 1, speaks of all believers, not just an elite group like the pastor or elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers. And this has major implications for you as a Christian. Why? Because you are the one that Paul is addressing here. You, if you are a Christian, are to restore your brother who has been caught in sin. So what does that mean? What does this restoration look like? What does it mean to restore a believer? Well, the term restore has the connotation of a fisherman mending his net, uh, a, a ripped fishing net, mending it, fixing it, or a doctor setting a broken, uh, broken bone. And it means to, to fix or to heal. 
You are to restore, fix, or heal a brother who has been caught in sin. Now, Paul is undoubtedly hearkening back to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Uh, please keep your place in Galatians, but let's turn back together, actually. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. It's kind of the parallel passage uh, to Paul's account, and we see a little bit more about what Paul is discussing. So, Matthew chapter 18, uh, and if you would, look at verse 15. And in this passage, it's an off-quoted passage, uh, we're given instructions on how to conduct church discipline. Now, church discipline can sometimes be overlooked in, in certain churches, and it, that happens with disastrous effect, yet it's vital to the health of the church, and it's foundational to the church. Indeed, Matthew 18 is the first time that we find the word church, ecclesia, in the New Testament, and it is placed within the context of church discipline. Now, please look with me at Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. It says, now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'd like you to notice the similarity between verse 15 of, of Matthew 18 and Galatians 6.1. In Matthew, we see someone referred to as a brother who, who is sinning, who's fallen into sin, just as Paul describes in his epistle in verse 1. Now, I'd like you also note that there's a three-step process to church discipline. First, if you know a Christian brother is sinning, you're to go show him his fault in private. Uh, this does not mean you're to go talk to someone else about the issue. You're not to go gossip to a friend, a deacon, or a pastor, or have them go speak to the individual in your place. If you do so, you're actually violating God's command and are sinning yourself. Your duty as a believer is to go speak to this sinning, offending brother face-to-face. You shouldn't necessarily send a text. You should go talk to them face-to-face if you if you go speak to the offender. But if that fails and the offender refuses to repent, then you're to go involve someone else. And generally, this is when you might want to reach out to your pastor or someone else in the church who who you respect. And both of you then go to the offending brother, uh, show him from Scripture his transgression, and then plead with him to repent. And then third, if you and your friend are unable to bring this offending brother to repentance, then you bring the matter to the whole church. And if the person still refuses to repent, the church will then treat them like, an, like a Gentile or an outsider, or an unbeliever, someone outside the family of God. Now, we could spend the entire rest of the night expositing and getting into this passage, and we're not going to do that, especially since your pastor is currently going through Matthew, so I'll let him do that when he gets to it later on. Um, but I want you to see how this passage is, has the same theology that Paul is drawing upon in Galatians chapter 6. We're told by Paul that believers are to restore a sinful brother. And in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus describes such restoration. He says, you have won your brother if you've done so. Jesus is prescribing proper church discipline. In a healthy church, this will not be an uncommon event. Unfortunately, sometimes we make church discipline out to be this really formal, really, really entail, something that, that takes a, uh, is, is, is super serious. And not, not that it's serious, but it's not something that is necessarily uncommon either in a healthy church. I mean, and, and you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I can't tell you the number of times that I have 
transgressed or sinned and been corrected by a loving brother or sister in Christ. And for those of you that have Christian spouses, the most frequent correction that I receive is from my sister in Christ, who happens to be my wife, because she sees me at my worst. You know, her telling me, Jeremy, you shouldn't be stressed over that seminary class that you have, or Jeremy, don't get upset with the traffic. It is L.A. after all. That is a form of church discipline at its lowest level. It is a sister in Christ coming to me, showing me my fault, and telling me, hey, you need to act godly in this manner and repent of what you're doing, of your sin. And 99% of church discipline should never get past this point. Right? It's, it should be a very common thing, something that we're comfortable going up to a brother and saying, hey, in love, I want to tell you, you're, you're transgressing here, you're sinning here, and in love, I'd like to help you see that and, and restore you. Right? That's what church discipline looks like. Right? And, and why? Well, because the purpose of church discipline is always remedial. It's never punitive. We should never exercise church discipline in an attempt to get rid of a problem child. We should never exercise church discipline with the goal of kicking someone out of the church or removing them from a position simply because we harbor a grudge against them. Now, concerning a disobedient brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.15 tells us to not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So we see this theme throughout both Paul and the Gospels. We should never correct a brother's sin with hostility, because that's not the goal of church discipline. And this is why Paul declares in Galatians 6.1 that the one restoring a brother is to do so in a spirit of gentleness. Now, as you might remember, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. Paul describes it as such in Galatians chapter 5. And the word gentleness connotes a submissive and teachable attitude towards God that manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration towards others. And such an attitude is not... A wimpish weakness that is, that is so commonly viewed as by the world, gentleness is the exact opposite of pride. It's grounded in humility. Gentleness is submission to God's word. So when you restore in a spirit of gentleness, you are restoring a fallen brother in humility. You're not restoring to boast of your spiritual prowess. I mean, look at me. I've restored 20 brothers. No, that's not the point of of restoration. It's not to gain authority or for you to boast or anything like that. You're to restore, restore gently and humbly because this is the mark of someone who's been called by God. And to demonstrate this truth, I, I'd like to take us to Colossians chapter 3 very quickly just to demonstrate this from Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 12 I'd like to see another uh, example of Paul describing gentleness as a mark of those who are Christians. It isn't some sort of spiritual gift that only a few in the church are to exercise. It's a fruit of the Spirit that we are all to exercise towards one another. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, So as the elect of God, notice that, the elect of God, who's that speaking to? Speaking to everyone, all Christians. All believers, elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Incredible. The mark of being chosen by God, called to salvation, is humility, gentleness, compassion, and forgiveness. 
All of these characteristics are to be exercised towards those with whom you might have complaint, or to quote Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression. As someone called by God to be his child, you must bear with your brethren in humility and in with gentleness. When you restore a believer caught in sin, it is to be done with gentleness and care, not with boasting or pride. Regarding restoring a fallen brother, Martin Luther says this, quote, Run unto him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. Such is the tenderness with which we are to restore a fallen brother or sister. So turn back with me now to Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. True restoration is a defense against pride. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, you're to restore in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. You see, true humility is demonstrated by acknowledging our own sinfulness. Without the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we would all need restoration. We are to look look to ourselves to ensure that we do not fall victim to the same temptation that we are seeking to, to help our fallen brother with. True restoration then kills our own pride. And as we will see, it's part of fulfilling the law of God. So, we saw that our first word to fulfill the law of Christ and to kill pride is restore. Our second word is bear. And this we find in verse 2. To bear conveys the thought of carrying with endurance or to lift up a heavy weight. We are to bear one another's burdens. And as with the word anyone found in verse 1, the context limits the term one another to other believers. We're to lift up or carry the burdens of our fellow Christians. The burdens here could be describing a general burden. I mean, the word for burden literally means a heavy weight or stone. And that someone is, has to carry for a great distance. Figuratively, the word came to mean any sort of oppressive ordeal or hardship that's difficult to bear. And some commentators argue that Paul's command speaks to Christians carrying the daily burdens of their fellow believers. And while I'm certainly not discouraging you from coming alongside your your fellow believers and aiding your brothers in Christ, the context of this verse isn't speaking about such general assistance. In, In its context, the reference suggests burdens are those that tempt a believer to fall back into the sin with which from which they have just been restored. This is a a persistive, uh, oppressive sin. It's one of the heaviest burdens that a Christian can bear. So restoration, then, isn't just a one-time event. It's not done simply to condemn or to rebuke a brother. No, true restoration, then, must be paired with bearing the burden of the brother caught up in the trespass. Do not seek to restore a fallen brother if you're not willing to then come alongside them and help them bear that burden. Now, Such assistance isn't limited to a one-time act. Remember, the definition of bear is to carry with endurance over a long period of time. If you're going to restore a fallen brother or sister in Christ, you must also bear their burden with endurance. You are in it for the long haul. And let's read the end of verse 2. If we do that, it says, uh, So then you will fulfill the law of Christ. You bear one another's burdens. By doing so, Paul declares that you will fulfill the law of Christ. You might be thinking, well, well, wait one second. The whole point of Galatians is that we're saved by faith and not by the law. And doesn't Galatians 3.10 declare that for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse? 
I mean, doesn't verse 23 of the same chapter say, but before faith came, we were held in custody under the law? I mean, doesn't Galatians chapter 5.18 declare, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law? Well, if that's true, then why does Paul speak of fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens? So again, we need to look at the context to determine what this verse is talking about. The term law of Christ is actually only used twice in Scripture. It's used here, and Paul uses it again in 1 Corinthians 9.21. There, it is used in contrast to the law of Moses. You have the law of Moses, and you have the law of Christ. And although both Galatians and 1 Corinthians are written by Paul, we must first look to Galatians and specifically to the, the passages immediately surrounding Galatians 6.2 to determine what Paul is talking about here. Now, we've already observed that Paul refers to the law in Galatians 3.10 and 3.23. What is he talking about? He's speaking about the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the works of the law. In Galatians 5.18, we see that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So in other words, those who are spiritual, led by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, are not under the law. Using the context of Galatians 6.1, who is Paul addressing in this passage? Other believers, Christians. He's addressing those who are spiritual, the same people who in chapter 5.18 are being led by the Spirit and are thus not under the law. So, if the law of Christ is in some way different to the law referenced in 5.18, what is the law of Christ? Well, chapter 5, verse 14, describes this law. Just go back uh, just a page to chapter 5, verse 14, and we'll see what Paul says about this law. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There we see the law of Christ. The law of Christ is fulfilled by his love. Because Christ has loved us, believers are filled with his love and thus can love others. Now, we're going to take a brief detour here to discuss the word fulfill. When we use the word fulfill, we need to define what we're talking about. To fulfill, in this sense, means filling up to the superlative sense, speaking to the maximum level. To fulfill means to achieve the greatest example possible. It doesn't always mean to complete. So when we are to fulfill the law of Christ, we are demonstrating to the maximum level Christ's command to love our neighbor. By bearing one another's burdens, we are achieving this love in a manner that is the greatest possible extent of the law of Christ. Yet even this is not complete, for we all wait the day when we have glorified bodies, completely sanctified, free from the power and presence of sin, and on that day we can perfectly love one another and thus completely fulfill the law of Christ. But until then, the way to fulfill the law of Christ is to love one another. One way to exercise this love is to bear one another's burdens. Loving one another is also a way to kill the pride that inhibits our flesh. Pride lurks in the dark recesses of our flesh, the old man whom we must constantly battle. Yet having Christ's love for others is the best remedy for pride. Pride is the love of self, whereas the the law of Christ is love for others. The great Scottish Puritan Henry Scougal, whose works inspired George Whitfield and the, and the Great Awakening, captures this truth brilliantly in his book, Life of God in the Soul of Man. And Scougal writes this, quote, Perfect love is a kind of self-dereliction, a wandering out of ourselves. It is a kind of voluntary death wherein the lover dies to himself and all his own interest not thinking of them nor caring for them anymore, and minding nothing but how he may please and gratify the party whom he loves, unquote. Fulfilling the law of Christ, then, must include both a 
negative and a positive sense. Negative in that we kill our pride and die to ourselves. Positive in that our desire is to love others. And by doing so, love God. And a point of application is to bear the burden of a fallen brother or sister in Christ. So are you doing this this evening? Who in your life is a brother or sister who needs you to come alongside and bear their burdens? If you're married and your spouse is a Christian, this is the best opportunity to do so. But I'm sure there are many others here who would love for you to come alongside them and practice this Christian principle. So such a realization will then lead us to our third and final word that's highlighted by Paul in our passage. Our final word is to examine. We must examine ourselves to root out our pride and to see if we have the love of Christ in our lives. Note Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, at first glance, this verse, along with verses 4 and 5, kind of seem out of place after verse 2. However, this verse continues Paul's ongoing polemic against pride, which prevents the believer from restoring a fallen brother in love. Such love must be free from the defilement of pride. It is impossible to love another in pride. Pride is the expression of self-love. It's not about loving others, it's about loving yourself. And self-love is when someone thinks he is something when he is nothing. It is the opposite, then, of fulfilling the law of Christ. As an illustration, the world often extols the supposed virtues of self-love or self-esteem. And we're told that the problem with people today, young people specifically, is that they lack self-esteem. And this is an unbiblical view of self that does not withstand the scrutiny of Scripture. Because why? Well, to esteem means to hold up in reverence. So self-esteem then means that you're holding yourself up in reverence. You're revering yourself. And the Bible never instructs us to, to do so. No, what does Galatians 5.14 say? It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the world will take this and say, see, God is saying, love yourself. That's a good thing. And, and yet this is the exact opposite of this command. You don't need to practice loving yourself. You do that far, far too much already. And so do I. Why? Because we are fallen sinners filled with pride. And pride is to esteem yourself as something and something important enough to hold up in reverence when, in fact, we are not important enough to hold ourselves up in reverence. What does Paul tell us in Philippians 2, 3 through 4? But with humility in mind, regarding one another as more important than yourself, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The only self-esteem problem that this generation has is that it holds itself in far too great esteem. We all think that we're owed more than we get. And when life fails to turn out the way that we desire, it is unmerited pride that makes us think we deserve something different. A quote from Thomas Boston, a great preacher, illustrates this point. He says, Pride of heart overlooks and vilifies mercies one is possessed of and fixes the eye on what is wanting in one's condition. Unquote. Now perhaps that's someone listening this evening. You've overlooked the wondrous mercies that God has granted you and become obsessed with something that you deem wrong in your life. And if so, I urge you, stay with me as we look in Scripture to see what Scripture says about the mercies of God towards us. You will find that the mercies of God far outweigh any of life's problems or failed expectations. You see, Scripture says that God has ordained all things. He works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. He is the sovereign of history. And to claim that you know better than God is the height of hubris. It is the deadly sin of pride rearing its ugly head 
And unless the sin is dealt, dealt with, hopelessness will grab you and not let go. It is an expression of pride to think that you deserve anything other than the eternal wrath of God as judgment for your sins. And the fact that any of us can experience pleasure, think rationally, or simply draw our next breath, is only due to the long-suffering grace of God. You see, when we view ourselves properly, we can only recognize that there's no room for self-esteem. Once you come to this realization, you cannot but be overcome with thankfulness towards an almighty God who has saved you and loved you. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? It is a trustworthy statement and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. You see, Paul viewed himself as the worst sinner, the least worthy. In Philippians 3.3, Paul declares that we who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Jesus Christ put no confidence in our flesh. We have no reason for pride in ourselves. Paul did not glory in his achievements. I mean, Paul could have. He was the foremost scholar of the Pharisees. He was a brilliant theologian. He kept the law to its very finest detail, but he had no reason to pride in his own accomplishments. In fact, he says he is the foremost, the chief of all sinners. Paul was not self-deceived. And he writes to ensure the churches in Galatia are not deceived about the state of their flesh. As we see from our text in Galatians 6.3, anyone who thinks that he is something when he is nothing is, is simply self-deceived. We are all nothings. We all have no goodness to endear ourselves to God. Our only redemptive quality uh, is that God has sent His Son into the world to save us. And that's not due to anything we have done. It's only due to the grace and glory of God. We think for, the moment, for a moment about the indictment that Paul makes to all humanity in Romans chapter 3. I won't go through all the list, but he says that there's, there's none righteous, not one. No one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. The list goes on and on and on. It's an exhaustive list that Paul lists out. And yet, despite his total depravity, the unsaved man will still boast in himself. Or take the man who claims to hate himself, who struggles with hopelessness and despair. He commits some grievous sin and declares, well, I can't believe I've done such a thing. Maybe none of you have ever thought that. I certainly have before. I do something, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm better than that. No, no, I'm not better than that. I'm a sinner saved by God and His grace alone. It's only God's grace that, has, that restrains me or restrains an unregenerate sinner from committing more grievous sin. And it's pride that makes us forget the natural condition of man. So if you are hopeless tonight, the only escape is not to deceive yourself, but instead, kill the pride that is at the source of these feelings, submit to the Lord, and trust in His mercy and His grace and His glory. See, the pride-killing prescription is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, I urge you to turn to Christ, for it is in Him that we have our true source of hope, our true source of worth. And if you are a believer who has friends or family that is battling with what the world calls low self-esteem, the cure is not to tell them how wonderful they are. No, the cure is to extol the work of Christ and what Christ has done for them. So you can be saved from despair because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. You must exhort your friends and neighbors that they can be declared righteous by the work of Christ, not their own work. Remind the desperate that there is nothing in us that caused Christ to lay down His life for us. We're not so special that, that God couldn't just bear to have heaven without us. No, it's for the glory of God that we have been saved. 
God loved his children, sent his son to die for them. You have been saved solely due to the unmerited grace of the Lord. And when we share the gospel with others, we are demonstrating that we are loving others instead of loving ourselves, thus fulfilling the law of Christ. But we must take care, lest we become filled with pride at our role in proclaiming the gospel. See, we're merely instruments in the Redeemer's hands, vessels fitted for His use. Thus, we must truly examine ourselves, as Paul did in 1 Timothy 1.15, and what he instructs us to do now in Galatians 6.4. In continuing Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul declares, But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Paul tells the Christian, examine yourself. Examine your work. So you're not to compare yourself with another person. When a believer restores a brother and bears his burden, the natural tendency is then to regard the other person's failings and say, oh, well, they they failed, but look at me, I'm not failing. I can boast in what I've done in my strength. And this is why Paul wrote in verse 1, to look to yourself, lest in your pride you think that you are too spiritual to face such such a temptation yourself. Instead of regarding another's work, we are to examine ourselves. Paul declares if we do this, then we have reason for boasting. Now, such a statement seems counter to the rest of Paul's argument about pride. I mean, Galatians 5.26 tells us, don't become vainglorious, don't become boastful. So is Paul contradicting himself here? I mean, what's going on in chapter 6, verse 4? Well, he's not contradicting himself. We see Paul's well-documented sarcasm displayed clearly in this verse. If you truly examine your works, you'll see that they are accomplished solely through the work of Christ. See, any good work that you do is the result of the Holy Spirit sanctifying your life and not the result of your own flesh. True self-examination reveals that we can only boast in the cross. And that's what Paul declares just ten verses later uh, in Galatians 6, uh, 14. So just look down ten verses later to chapter 6, verse 14. Paul declares, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the Christian is one who has been crucified to the world. Our pride, our self-esteem, our boasting, they've all been crucified with our flesh. Our only boast is in the cross of Christ. We do not regard another's perceived inadequate work as a reason for boasting in ourselves. We cannot compare ourselves to others. No, the standard is Christ. And without His grace, we all fall far, far short. On Judgment Day, you will not be able to point to your neighbor and say, see, I was better than him. My works were better than his. You won't be able to gain God's favor if you do so. And this is the point of verse 5. A cursory reading of Galatians 6.5 seems to contradict Galatians 6.2. If we're to bear one another's burdens in verse 2, why does verse 5 declare, for each one will bear his own load? Well, note that verse 2 uses the word burden. Verse 5 uses the word load. These are two different terms, two different meanings. Verse 2 describes helping fellow believers struggling against temptation. Verse 5 speaks of bearing the load of our actions on Judgment Day. So the phrase will bear in Galatians 6.5 harkens back to chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul declares the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment. He uses the same verbiage. Both verses are speaking of the final day of judgment. On that day, believers will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And although we have been saved from the eternal wrath of God, our works will be tested by the king. 
1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, Paul describes this testing is done as through fire. It says that each man's work will become evident for the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And to test is the same Greek word translated as examine in Galatians 6, 4. We're to examine our works because one day they will be examined by our most high judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And far too many Christians, I'm afraid, live in a spiritual stupor, never examining their own works. This isn't about salvation. This is about coming before the the Most High King on Judgment Day. And yes, you will be saved, but your works will be examined by Him. I mean, think about Paul's warning, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourself to see that you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So testing ourselves, testing our works has the dual purpose of not only testing our works for Judgment Day, but to test ourselves to see that if we're truly saved. Works don't determine your salvation, but they do demonstrate that you are a Christian. And the works of a redeemed person will demonstrate a life that has been dramatically changed by the love of God. It is a life through which God's love is poured out upon the members of the church. And these works do not save you again, but they merely demonstrate that you have been given a regenerated heart. So examine yourself. See if you are restoring a fallen brother due to a desire to lovingly shoulder and bear his burdens, or if it's merely just an attempt to exalt your own pride. Fulfilling the law of Christ is deeper than merely just helping fellow believers. It gets to the root of why we bear one another's burdens. This is why to fulfill the law of Christ, you must not simply restore and bear. You must also examine yourself. See if you are in the faith and then examine why am I doing this? Am I doing this because the love of God resides within me or because I'm trying to elevate myself and advance myself? And this leads us to reflect on what we read in our passage today. It should prompt us to self-reflection, to search our hearts. Do your works demonstrate a love for others or a love for yourself? On Judgment Day, will your works be rooted in pride and self-aggrandizing? Or will they be founded on the love that comes from your position in Christ? What is your motivation behind your interactions with fellow believers? Have you killed the pride in your life? And an honest answer must be no. Because it's a lifelong war that we all wage against our sinful pride. We all must esteem others greater than ourselves. We have to see, are we self-deceived, thinking that we are something when we really are nothing? Because one day our works will all be laid bare before the Most High Judge. So when you look to restore a fellow brother, look to your motives, look to you, your pride to see if that is motivating you, or your love for Christ. And this question will help determine you if you are fulfilling the law of Christ in your life. And these are the questions that Paul wants us to wrestle with as we go through this difficult passage. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your love, sending your Son to die for our sins, to kill the pride that is in our life. We thank you for your tender mercies and grace. And I ask that you would help your word pierce the hearts of all who listen today. This is an encouraging passage, but a tough passage. Uh, May your words smite any shred of pride that finds its hiding place in our hearts. May it inspire us to love one another, to restore one another when we fall, 
to bear one another's burdens. May we fulfill the law of Christ for your honor and your glory. May each person here reflect on the truth of your word. It's in your hallowed name that we pray. Amen.